0: Welcome to the Contending for Christ Apologetics podcast, where Danny seeks to empower believers to defend their faith. This fight is internal, defending against false teachings that are creeping into the church as well as our hearts and minds. It is also external, with believers needing to know how they can solidify and defend their beliefs. So sit back and relax as we contend for Christ. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to C4C Apologetics. Like I said in the teaser trailer the other day, I want to take today and tell you 10 reasons, there's more than 10, but these would be considered the top 10 reasons I, Daniel, C4C Apologetics Ministry, personally believe in God. And not only God, not a deism view, not a theism view, but the God of the Bible, Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world, the Savior of mankind, the Passover Lamb who has come to take away the sins of the world. Why do I believe in all that gobbledygook, all this nonsense, all this magic stuff? Well, I'm glad you asked. And that's what I'm going to be talking about today. Without further ado, let's just jump right into the water. Number one, the first reason why I believe in God are intrinsic questions intrinsic questions i guarantee you if you ask 10 people this question 10 people is going to answer it yes if you ask this question you'll be like do you, have you ever they're going to be like i totally did and they can probably remember where they were when they asked this question what question or questions Are intrinsic that every mankind asks? Well, there's three of them. Number one, one of the questions we ask is Why are we here? What is the purpose of our life? I've contemplated that question before, and I guarantee you there was one point in your time in your life that you've asked yourself that same question What's the purpose of all this life? What is the meaning? Is there some meaning that is there, or is it something that I create myself? Another question that you've probably asked yourself, and same with these 10 other people as well, is how did we even get here? Did we get here from point of singularity, then a rapid expansion rate of the universe, and then uh, a hot burning rock, a lot of rain, a lightning bolt hitting a uh, cell, and then everything coming from that? Or were we created? You probably asked that question, how did we get here? A third question you probably asked yourself was, what happens after this life? You know, we're all going to die, I mean, what's next? Is it just annihilation? Is there a place to go? What is the purpose of all this if there's nothing after this life? Are we simply the product of somebody's imagination or dream? Are we just a brain in a vat, in some science lab? What is the purpose? How did we get here and where are we going? You see, these are intrinsic questions that every single person that's ever walked the face of the earth have asked themselves. And I I guarantee you, and I ask you, start asking people, just for research sake, just for study's sake. Ask them, have you ever asked yourself what the meaning of life is? Bet you, 100% people are going to answer that question. Yes, they have. You see, these questions formulate what's considered a worldview. How you answer at least these three questions will dictate how you view the world. What do you think the reasons of the world's behavior is? The behavior of people? The trajectory of the world? The origins of the world? How we answer these questions develops our own worldview. And then part of presuppositional apologetics is challenging the worldviews. Is our worldviews tenable or livable? Can we honestly live a good life by whatever worldview we have? Is it logically sound? Is it coherent? The first reason I believe in God and the Jesus of Scripture is those intrinsic questions we have. They have to come from somewhere. And I argue that materialism and naturalism and random products of chance and evolution cannot give that transcendent, that intrinsic question We all have. Only a purposeful creator. Created you and I in his image. Would put that question deep in our hearts. For us to seek and search. For the God who loves us. What's the second reason? The second reason is testimonies. Changed lives. Now I understand that this could be argued. From any type of religion out there. Whether it's Buddhism. Islam. Mormons. Jehovah. Whatever the case is. But I look at. Lives of changed people, or changed lives of people—I should say—changed lives of changed people. And like Paul in the Damascus Road, first he was persecuting the church; he held the coats of those that stoned and killed Peter, or, uh, Stephen, the first martyr, in the Book of Acts. Then that conversion on Damascus Road—he completely changed. And if you're a Christian today, I would argue that your life is completely different than what it was before. If not, you need to work on repentance and changing your heart and getting right with God. You see, I know what I was like before I came to Christ. I know what I was like the moment I came to Christ. And I know what I'm like now. And thankfully, through the Spirit's enablement, God has allowed me to be broken enough to change me from the man I was to the man I am today. That changed life, that testimony, is a part of what's called experiential apologetics and it's a testimony that we can use to tell others why we believe in God. I was like this before I found Jesus. I found Jesus and now he changed me to this. My heart's desires are no longer the same. I am a brand new new creature. That's the second reason. The third reason would be the Kalam cosmological argument and out of all the all the classical arguments for the existence of God and you look at Aquinas This is one of them that I believe is the strongest argument. Again, these arguments don't prove the Christian God. These arguments don't prove Jesus Christ. These arguments merely prove the necessity of a being, of a God, of an intelligence, whatever you want to call it. And it's from understanding the existence of or the necessity of the existence of this God or this being That we move into uh, from deism to theism and then to Christianity. And so it's a process of steps. It's sequential. But the Kalam Cosmological Argument really argues and gives me clear evidence that all this could not have started from singularity in a bang. So how does the argument go? It goes like this. Everything that begins to exist has a cause. Everything that begins to exist has a cause. So, for instance, I'm speaking to a microphone right now. It's a Blue Yeti microphone. If you like the quality of the audio, I encourage you to check it out. It was like a hundred bucks. Hopefully, I'll move up eventually. But that's the microphone you're listening to right now. So, this microphone began to exist. Why? How? Well, it had a cause. Somebody saw the need for microphones to put it to audio tracks for your listening pleasure. Hopefully, not pleasure of my voice, but there's a cause to this microphone. Okay. So everything that begins to exist has a cause. Microphone began to exist, it has a cause. So the second premise is the universe began to exist. So in the past, people believed in what's called the steady state theory. And what it was was the fact and the belief that the universe had always existed, that it was uh, infinite in age, whatever the case is, it, it was just always in existence that view for many decades now has not been well received any longer by scientific community whether you're atheist or a theist and so they're believing now and seeing that the universe did not always exist and that there had to have been a cause and part of the reason for that is they're looking at the expansion and the continual growth of the universe and then they're using that to try to backtrack to a point of what they call singularity or they look at how galaxies and things are winding down from i think it's the second law of thermodynamics where everything goes from order to disorder and the law of entropy. And so they're looking at that, that if things are winding down at some point, they had to be wound up. And so they're seeing that the steady state theory isn't a tenable view anymore. And so the second premise was, remember, the universe began to exist. So the scientific community would argue, yes, it began to exist at some point in time. Now what that beginning is, some atheists will say that it was the white hole, it was a big bang, big crunch, an oscillating universe, bubble universe, multiverse, whatever the case is. So two premises. Everything that begins to exist had a cause. The universe began to exist, therefore, conclusion, the universe has a cause. And so if the universe has a cause, we would try to find out what is that cause. Like I said, some people will look in the oscillating universe, big bang, big crunch, the white hole universe, whatever the case is. I look at this as a God, a being, an intelligence that created this universe. Kalam Cosmological Argument. You can go check out William Lane Craig. He goes into much more detail as far as this and other arguments to include the epistemological argument, ontological argument, uh, teleological, all the other ones as well. So that's the third reason, I personally believe. What's the fourth? Well, the fourth would be that teleological argument. Teleological argument meaning arguing God's existence from design. Like I said already, these don't necessarily prove Jesus or the God of scripture, but they do argue a necessity of a being, of a God, of an intelligence. And so what are some things within the design argument that I just don't see? How evolution, random chance process, Uh, Billions of years from materialism and naturalism could do, could create. And one of those objects, one of those uh, things, (laughs) things, that's a very academic strong word. One of those pieces of evidence in the teleological argument I see as a hydrologic cycle. The hydrologic cycle here on this earth. So you have the rain. The rain rains down, runs, rains on mountains and everything goes down the valleys, it goes into the creeks and the streams and the brooks and the waterfalls, and it flows down into the rivers, and the rivers go out to the oceans. And then the water and the oceans and the lakes and everything, they evaporate. There's evaporation, goes up to the clouds, creates the clouds. Clouds are made up of water molecules, if you didn't know that. And then the clouds have all the water, and then guess what do the clouds do? The clouds cause precipitation and rain. And so you have the rain. So the rain on the mountains and the mountains into creeks and the creeks into brooks and the brooks and the lakes and the lakes and the rivers and the rivers on the ocean. And the water goes around and around and around. And it's all because of the hydrologic cycle. So, yeah, you remember that old song? So I just sang it for you. But the hydrologic cycle. What's another one? Another one is the cycle of oxygen and carbon dioxide. You see, this is amazing. And this is one reason why I believe Christians, we need to be good stewards of this earth. God had put us here and he had told Adam to go ahead and cultivate and tend the garden and take care of God's creation. And we would do perfect if we could just take care of God's creation. But one of the things that we know of is we, people, mankind, mammals, air breathers, whatever the case is, we breathe in oxygen. We breathe in oxygen. We need oxygen to survive. That's why astronauts have to wear spacesuits going up to the moon. So without oxygen, we can't survive. So we have to breathe it in. So where do we get the oxygen? Well, we get the oxygen from plants, trees. How do plants and trees create this oxygen? Well, they need something called carbon dioxide. Carbon dioxide. It's the carbon dioxide that they use to process and convert and to push out oxygen for mankind. Where do these plants get carbon dioxide? You guessed it. From mankind. When we breathe out, we breathe out carbon dioxide. Plants breathe in carbon dioxide. Plants breathe out oxygen. We breathe in oxygen. You see this cycle going on. It's an amazing cycle that I cannot fathom how naturalism or materialism has established it. Another one uh, that I believe as far as teleological arguments are concerned is information in DNA and in seeds. Did you know that everything that makes you you is coded into your DNA? Your DNA contains uh, the color of your skin, fingernails, hair color, eye color, eyelashes, length, personality traits, everything. Everything that makes you, you is in your DNA. And that's coded with information. And it's just amazing once you look at it from a biological sense. But it's not only in DNA, it's also in seeds. Even the tiniest seed has information coded in it to tell it how to root, that the roots go down into the soil and that it sprouts upward towards the sun. There's information coded in everything, and information is very complex. In the past, evolutionists used to believe that the more we looked into the human body, the more simpler that would become, while they've since realized that the more you look inside the human body, the more complex it becomes. And this would be a total argument against evolution and natural processes and into a design of some sort, whether it's God of the Bible, whether it's some being, whether it's intelligence, but something. And again, we go from there and we move over to show the God of the Bible and the Christ of the world. Number four, teleological argument. What about number five? objective morality objective morality now this is something that since the postmodernism uh, many many decades ago that has been challenged but objective morality objective morality just simply means that something is true no matter what or where and so it's not necessary to find objective mor- morality or objective moral law in everything if there is but one objective moral standard In the entirety of mankind's history, if there's just one thing that we can all agree on that it is totally wrong, we have to find out where does that intrinsic law come from. And so while in some areas it might not be okay to eat people, in other areas and other tribes it might be okay to eat people because that's how they uh, honor their deceased ancestors. But what about torturing innocent babies for fun? I would argue that nobody anywhere would believe that torturing innocent babies for fun is moral. It's highly immoral. And that would just be one argument of objective morality on what, how does this come to be? How is there a unanimous decision as far as torturing innocent babies for fun being immoral? It has to come from somewhere. If it was cultural or if it was just simply heritage or tradition, it wouldn't be the same all over the world. But this, and there's others out there as far as objective morality is concerned, that is pretty much intrinsic. And so we would have to find where is this intrinsic argument come from? Where does this intrinsic law come from? And I would posit that comes from a lawgiver. That lawgiver would be none other than God himself, number six number six sort of ties a little bit into the teleological argument, but it is scientific laws, scientific laws now here on earth we have uh the law of gravity, the law of gravity uh I think it was uh i was it Isaac Newton or Thomas Edison. I was sitting under an apple tree, apple tree fell out and bonked him on his head. And from there, he started looking into the law of gravity. Whatever goes up must come down. Now, you can argue what is gravity. Is gravity a force that pulls us down or pushes us down? Is gravity real? Some people that believe in the flat earth society, they believe that gravity is an illusion that the earth is actually continuously on an upward trajectory and that it's just us being pushed down by the upward momentum. But regardless of your views on the law of gravity, we argue that whatever goes up must come down. That's a constant throughout the entire world. Well, what about the law of entropy? The law of entropy simply discusses that things typically go or things do go from order to disorder over a period of time. You leave a car out in in the rain for 20 years. Well, hopefully it won't rain for 20 years, but you leave a car outside for 20 years, it's going to deteriorate. There's going to be rust. It's going to start breaking down. Rubber on the tires are going to get worn, broken down, whatever the case is. Things go from order to disorder over a period of history of time. What about the law of biogenesis? The law of biogenesis simply argues that life only comes from life. If you were to put an empty glass jar on your desk and you just watch it for 20 years, I guarantee you life will not spontaneously generate. Spontaneous generation is what some people advocate as to the origins of life. But law of biogenesis, life only comes from non-life. You can't simply uh, try to mate with a desk and then you have like this desk child. Life only comes from life and that's a constant standard law. One of the strongest laws I like to look at and I like to consider is what's called the laws of logic. The laws of logic pretty much has three laws. You have the law of principle identity, the law of excluded middle, and the law of non-contradiction. The law of non-contradiction is the one that we're most familiar with, is two truths cannot be equally uh, the same. Uh, They can't be truth at the same time. For instance, if I say... Uh, Jehovah from the Bible is God. And someone else says Allah from the Quran is God. And they are totally different gods. One of us is right or both of us is wrong. They can't both be the same. If I say 2 plus 2 is 4 and you say no, 2 plus 2 is 12, one of us is right or both of us is wrong. We can't both be right. Otherwise, we're going to be be getting some really crazy looking architecture and buildings out there that won't even stand up. Uh, Thanks, Common Core. So the law of non-contradiction says two opposing things cannot be equally true at the same time. So that's the sixth reason I personally believe in God. Seventh is archaeology. Now we're starting to get into the realm of the God of the Bible, the God of the Bible in Jesus. First is going to be uh, the Hittite civilization. In the book of Genesis, there's common references to a civilization known as the Hittites. And so basically, many people and critics said, oh, the Bible was wrong, there was no Hittite empire, we have no knowledge of this, no recollection of the Hittite civilization ever in recorded history. Until years ago, they found evidence and archaeological uh, artifacts speaking to and giving evidence of a Hittite civilization. What else? Well, you have the city of Jericho. Remember Jericho, the Israelites walked around Jericho's walls seven days and then God had the walls fall down. So a lot of people claim that that never really happened until they found some compelling evidence as far as this is possibly the site of Jericho. What is the evidence? Well, if you remember in the book of Joshua, we read that it was in the harvest time uh, that these events were unfolding. And in the harvest time, it would have been Around springtime, whatever the case was, and the rivers and the waters, there was very much a rainy season, whatever the case was. They harvested up all the grain. What they found at this uh, archaeological site was they found uh, grain pots, jars, of grain filled up to a site that many believe is Jericho. And what else did they find about the grain pots was that this grain was charred. It was burnt. It was crisp there were ruins of walls that were broken down. And so if you read the story of Jericho, not only were the walls collapsed, but also the city was on fire. And if it was a time of harvest, you would have had the grains in the pots and the jars that were completely full because they harvested all the grain. And with the fire, they're burnt and they're charred up. And archeology span has discovered this site. Now I can't prove this is the literal site of Jericho. But it does give strong evidence to that fact. What else? Well, we have the book of Daniel with Belshazzar. Belshazzar is in chapter 5. Remember the famous handwriting in the wall, on the wall with Mene, Mene, Tekel, Eupharsin, right? So Belshazzar, many people said, oh, he he's not a king of Babylon. And the Bible calls him a king of Babylon. But he's, he's not on the list of the Babylonian kings. What's fascinating is that when you look at... Uh, Belshazzar and he talked to Daniel he said if you were able to decipher the writing on this wall I'll make you the third uh, in my kingdom it's interesting that he said he'd make him the third because Nebuchadnezzar with the dream interpretation made Daniel the second in the kingdom why would Belshazzar make him the third in the kingdom well for a long time many people were wondering about that until they found a few artifacts Uh, the Nabonidus cylinder the Nabonidus chronicle those are some artifacts that were discovered that reveal the fact that Belshazzar was the son of a man by the name of Nabonidus. Nabonidus had left off to a place in Arabia to go ahead and try to develop a moon god. I forget what the name of this god was. I think it was Sin, but he went off to Arabia to try to establish this religion out there. And he had left his son Belshazzar as the co-regent, if you will, so the second in charge. It was still uh, Nabonidus' kingdom, but he left his son Belshazzar in charge. So when Belshazzar told Daniel, I'll make you the third place in this kingdom, that's totally accurate because Belshazzar was already number two because his father was number one. So the only place that Belshazzar could make Daniel was number three in the kingdom. And for a long time, People didn't know that until archaeology unearthed these artifacts and it corroborated that aspect in Daniel. Fascinating. I love archaeology. Another aspect of archaeology that verifies and supports and corroborates scripture is the Pontius Pilate uh, stone. A lot of people believe that Pontius Pilate was, there's no evidence again. And it's a shame because a lot of people uh, go against that old adage where, where if you don't have evidence then it's not supported and it's not true but you got to remember from a logical argumentative apologetic standpoint whether it's christian apologetics or atheist apologetics absence of evidence is not evidence of absence just because you've never found something doesn't mean it doesn't exist or it's not true it could be true it might not be true but once it's found it definitely corroborates it and for pontius pilate this stone was found I think it was in the 60s. I don't remember exactly. But it clearly identifies Pontius Pilate as the prefect of Judea during the reign of Tiberius Caesar. And so this verifies and corroborates Pontius Pilate in the gospel accounts as far as trying Jesus and things like that. Archaeology number seven on the top ten reasons why I personally believe in God and Jesus Christ. Number eight. The flood of Noah's days. The flood of Noah's day. Now, we can get into the argument as far as why the flood, why the flood came, why did God judge the entire world. Uh, But I'm not going to get into this episode. You can check out websites as far as that's concerned. You can look at the Nephilim theory, which is a theory that I hold to and I definitely believe in. But the fact that scripture records in Genesis 6 and 7 that there was a global flood corroborates scripture. What's fascinating is in Turkey they found what, they consider anchor stones these are huge stones weighing hundreds and hundreds of pounds that have holes drilled on the tops of them and basically what's believed is these were stones anchor stones that were hung from the ark of noah and basically these just made sure that the ark remained afloat remember the ark was never meant to go anywhere it wasn't like hey come on family we're going to go on a cruise and go check out europe no the ark was simply meant to just stay afloat that's why it looked like a barge. That's why it didn't look like anything that was supposed to be mobile. It was just a ship supposed to stay top, topside. And so they find these anchor stones that really provide evidence as the possibility of being used on Noah's Ark. Now you can argue whether it was actually in Turkey, whatever the case was, but it's fascinating. But then also you, you find these marine fossils on the tops of mountains. And not only that... You also find these clams, these clams that are fossilized with their mouths shut. And what's interesting is when a clam dies, uh, the, the jaw tension releases and it opens its mouth. That's how you know a clam is dead. But these clams have been fossilized shut. And so to be fossilized with this mouth shut, that had to have happened and had to have been buried very quickly in some sort of dirt or whatever the case was. And I would argue that's part of the flood. The other fascinating thing is if you look at all the cultures around the world, whether it's in Mexico or Australia or Europe or wherever, you're going to find some sort of a legend of a flood. Now, all the flood legends are going to be a little bit different, but you're going to find some legend of a flood and a person. And so... I would argue that's just part of the oral tradition of what happened back then with Noah and his family after the flood, the oral tradition just spread outward and then it slowly evolved, sort of like the telephone game that we played in school. Eighth reason I believe in uh, God is the Noah's flood. Nine. Reason number nine, the book of Daniel. Now, if I were to ask you, what book of the Bible would you use to uh, witness to someone that's looking or a skeptic? You would probably look at the book of John. You would probably look at the book of John because it's very evangelistic. There's a lot about Jesus. It talks a lot about how to be saved. And that's great. I also would use the book of Daniel, especially for a skeptic. Because the book of Daniel is so prophetic. It is so historical. It is so accurate that a lot of people have a problem with the dating of the book of Daniel and try to make it part of the 2nd century B.C., Instead of the 6th century BC. And I'll have another episode that talks about the Maccabean theory and everything another day, but the Book of Daniel gives clear evidence as to the veracity of Scripture. For instance, the Book of Daniel prophesies, remember this is 6th century BC, prophesies the fall of Babylon, it prophesied the coming of the Persian Mede Empire, it prophesied the coming of the Greek Empire in the fourth century. It prophesied the coming of the Roman Empire around the first century B.C. It prophesied all that, about 500 years apart from the Roman Empire. Not only that, the book of Daniel in chapter 11, I believe it is, it prophesied the fall and the breaking of the Greek Empire. Of how uh, it was Alexander the Great that died and his kingdom was split to the four generals, to the four generals. And those four generals created the the four empires. I believe it was the Seleucid Empire, the Ptolemaic Empire, uh, the Cassander, and the Lysimachus Empires. And those four empires. And of those four, the book of Daniel talks about only two of them gain any sort of prominence. in the king of the north and the king of the south. The Seleucid and the Ptolemaic Empires. It goes on even further in that in chapter 11 where it talks about different kings in the Greek Empire. Is specifically about one point in history where the king of the north will make an alliance with the daughter of the king of the south, Ptolemy, in a marriage union. And we see this in the history of Greece where the Seleucid king comes down to marry Berenice, part of the Ptolemaic Empire, for this alliance, if you will. All written about 300 years before it happened The book of Daniel gives very strong evidence of God and the author of the Holy Bible. The tenth and final top ten reasons why I believe in Jesus Christ and the God of the Bible is the resurrection. The resurrection. You show me what happened to the the body of Christ. You show me where the bones are. You discredit the entirety of Christendom. You just take Christianity and put it on the shelf with all the other religions out there. But no one has ever been able to prove what happened to Jesus' body. You have your main theories as far as the empty tomb is concerned. Whether the tomb was, uh, the body was misplaced or it was stolen or they hallucinated. Or it was the swoon theory where he was resuscitated and walked out, whatever the case is. All those theories have very huge gaping holes in them. Plus, we see throughout the historians, whether it's Josephus, whether it's Tacitus, whether it's Pliny the Younger, whether it's even uh, uh, Lucian of Samosota, there's writings of this group of people that continue to argue the resurrection of Christ. How easy would it have been for the Roman Empire to snuff out this religion if they simply showed the body of Jesus in that first century? They could have snuffed out the religion very easily, but they didn't and they couldn't because Jesus Christ rose. This leaves that final thought. Who is Jesus to you? C.S. Lewis pretty much sums it up this way. Jesus Christ is either liar, lunatic, or Lord. He's either a liar, a lunatic, or Lord. He's a liar if he claimed he would resurrect and if he never did. Oh well, he'd be a liar. Show me the body. He'd be a lunatic if he was a madman saying that he would resurrect. Just this crazy guy. Who resurrects from the grave? Or he's Lord if he truly rose from that grave and that tomb is empty. I know what I believe. I know what I believe based upon evidence. Circumstantial evidence through a process called abductive reasoning. What do you believe? When you die and you come to faith, when you come to face with God, are you going to say you didn't believe because there wasn't enough evidence? Are you going to say you didn't believe because no one told you? Are you going to say you didn't believe because this is what you heard and you just believed it? I encourage you and I implore you look into the evidence for your personal self. You answer the question, who is Jesus? Is he a liar, lunatic, or Lord? I pray you find that he's the Lord of your life and that you come to him with a conviction, with a repentant heart for reconciliation back to God through the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus Christ. Well, those are the top 10 reasons why I personally believe in God. I hope it's been somewhat enlightening to you. At least it gives you a little bit of a glimpse into my heart and why I believe what I believe. I encourage you, consider why you believe in the God of the Bible. Why do you believe in Jesus Christ? Feel free to leave me a comment below on this episode, whatever the case is, on why you believe. I'd love to read these testimonies. So I thank you for checking us out. Keep praying for this ministry. Share this ministry, this episode with others. And until next time, God bless. Thanks for listening. We pray this ministry glorifies God and edifies you, the listener. For more great content, including videos, blogs, newsletters, and a free ebook, check out our website at c4capologetics.weekly.com. You can also email us at c4capologetics at gmail.com with questions or ideas for future episodes. We truly appreciate you. Please like, share, and comment on this episode, and don't forget to subscribe for future episode notifications. Thanks for checking in, and remember to be bold and keep contending for Christ.